Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world for the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and following a brutal counter coup, I have taken back control of The World in 30 Minutes podcast from Jeremy Shapiro, who uh, was in the chair while I was in China last week. Not just taken back control, but forced me into being uh, the servitude of a guest yet again. Indeed. And as a, as a punishment to you for your uh, insubordination, I'm forcing you to talk about Trump for the second week running. Is it possible that I could just get a jail sentence maybe or a flogging or something instead of that? We considered it, but the European Court of Human Rights uh, suggested that to get you to talk about Trump might be uh, a more fitting punishment. They have a strange definition of cruel and unusual. They do. Um, maybe that's why the British government and Theresa May in particular have been so desperate to, uh, to, to, to lead the jurisdiction of the, the European Court of Human Rights. But um, that's, I suppose, a topic for another podcast. Um, what we thought we'd do today is have a slightly different podcast from the normal ones that we've been having. Uh, last week, Jeremy very ably looked at many of the the different perceptions uh, which Europeans had going into the interesting NATO summit. Um, after that, President Trump went on to the UK and then went on to uh, visit with uh, President Putin in Helsinki. And I think it's fair to say that the tone of coverage in the Western media has been at a level of uh, almost hysterical uh, anxiety um, ever since then. And I was watching these events from Beijing where things look very, very different. And I thought it might be interesting to spend a bit of time looking at Trump as a political phenomenon and the events of the last few weeks from this bigger perspective. And uh, Jeremy and I are going to uh, argue about what kind of figure Trump is, what he's trying to do, and um, maybe that will add another dimension to the discussion that has been going on. What do you think, Jeremy? Uh, I think we probably are going to argue about it. I I mean, if you're... uh I think it's very odd to go to China to try to find Donald Trump. And so I'm really interested to find out what you found there uh, and to hopefully uh, disinfect you of any inappropriate notions that you may have picked up at the re-education camps in Beijing. Okay, so why don't I start? Um, And I, I think what was really striking for me was the fact that whereas in many Western capitals, Trump is seen as a dangerous lunatic, in China, the term which people was used the most was that he's a master strategist and tactician. And uh, it was very interesting talking to lots of different people, uh, both academics, uh, officials, uh, ministers, and, 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 and former ministers about Trump as a political phenomenon over there. And essentially what came out of all of those discussions was that they have a, a, a view of Donald Trump as a man with a mission. He sees that the US-led order is an order which costs the country a lot of money, but is one which has been helping China rise more quickly than the US. And that if 
current trends continue, it's, it's a matter of when rather than if uh, China replaces the United States as the, the biggest uh, and most powerful country in the world. And therefore, rather than allowing that to happen, uh, Donald Trump wants to embark on a process of creative destruction. So the first phase is to try and disrupt and to destroy the existing order and institutions. And the reason they think he has to do that is because the elites and the institutions are so baked into a particular way of doing things, it's almost impossible to change that. So it's only by destroying them that you can actually uh, shape and reshape the way that people think about things. And that that's then the, the, the first phase towards a recreation of the order where the US renegotiates the terms of order um, at a level where it's less expensive to the US um, and uh, is more likely to, to, to favor the US going forward. Why, why do they think the order is expensive to the United States? Well, because the US has, uh, you know, spends a fair amount of money on defense. Um, spends three and a half percent of its GDP on defense. That's less than China spends on its defense in, term, in GDP terms. In absolute terms, it's more, but it's less of a burden on the United States. And it's historically the lowest burden that a, that a world-leading country has ever spent on its defense. Listen, I'm happy to, to go through it, but can I just lay out the case first? Before oh, sure. So it's an expensive order, two-stage process. First stage is creative, is the destruction. Then the second phase is the, the renegotiation of, uh, of, of, of that order. And that it's best done bilaterally because the US is still the most powerful country in the world. So if it is dealing with individual countries on a bilateral basis rather than through these institutions, it will do it from a position of strength uh, with everyone. So that's what they think is, is the kind of uh, the grand plan. And then they see that China has been singled out as the, uh, as the biggest threat to the US. And they think that Trump has done a fantastically good job of, of handling the relationship with China because he has, on the one hand, uh, chosen one topic at a time and then pushed very, very hard on that topic driving concessions out of the Chinese until there were no more concessions to be had. So starting with North Korea, they say that, you know, um, they've made six or seven sets of concessions on, on, on North Korea, introduced crippling sanctions, which are so bad that they're almost seen as, a, as an enemy nation to, to, by the North Koreans after doing all of these uh, different things. And then when Trump ran out of road and realized he wasn't getting any more concessions, he cut a deal and then opened up a new flank on, on trade. And they think that that's both tactically very uh, clever, but also uh, it's a great strategy for, 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 for dealing um, with China. And they said that he's also done it whilst flattering the vanity of Xi Jinping, talking about him as a strong leader, giving him a sense of, uh, of being a peer, so that uh, he creates a sort of framework for this. And that's leading in China to uh, a deep sense of unease about where it's going. They think that, that the Chinese have maybe overreached um, both economically by launching things like the Made in China 2025 initiative, not rebalancing the trade relationship, not delivering a lot of the promises that they made, whilst simultaneously 
uh, being quite aggressive on maritime issues, launching the Belt and the Road initiative. And they say that they're in this kind of extraordinary period where um, the US president for the first time is willing to take them on both in word and indeed not just in one area but simultaneously on economic issues on strategic issues and in a kind of ideological battle about how the world should be ordered um, and therefore a lot of the Chinese foreign policy community are arguing that there has to be a, a process of retrenchment um, in response to Trump and that they should be pulling back from these different elements they also are starting to rethink how they handle a lot of their major relationships with other players and get onto friendlier terms with Japan and with Korea so that they're less isolated as well as with the European Union. And thirdly, um, they think that um, they should be trying to, to cut some kind of deal with, uh, with the US afterwards. So there is a sort of general sense of, um, uh, of kind of unease and, and fear of Trump as a, as a leader because of his unpredictability, but also a sense that he has a strategic purpose. And what one of the, uh, the former Chinese vice minister, He Yafei, who um, uh, famously uh, pointed, the, was very rude to Obama at the Copenhagen Climate Conference, he was saying that he thought that uh, that, that trade wars are now going to be the norm rather than the exception. And it was just the tip of an iceberg of strategic confrontation, which they're expecting from the Chinese. So that was, uh, sorry, from the US towards China. Anyway, so that's the case for, for Trump as the, the master strategist and tactician. So tell me why the Chinese are wrong then. Uh, yeah, no, I think uh, the Chinese would probably be a better president of the United States than Trump. Uh, but honestly, you know, there is a, uh, Robert Jervis says that there is this sort of consistent misperception in international relations that you'll always see your opponent as more strategic and more monolithic than he actually is. And this may be the, the, the greatest example of it. The, the sort of capacity to find in Trump's unpredictability and in his, uh, general sort of hostility, uh, to weave around it the most negative possible strategy that you can for your own interests and to be frightened by it uh, seems to be something that's happening all over the world. And I think it reflects, it reflects mostly on his unpredictability. And that's why every single country, uh, including in Europe, but also, frankly, in the United States, uh, a lot of people have managed to weave a web of coherence around Trump in ways that make them feel uh, very frightened. But in fact, that coherence simply doesn't exist. And frankly, the Trump administration, uh, and I think Donald Trump himself, would not recognize that description of American policy. Uh, there, 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 there isn't an effort uh, to, to dismantle that thing. The, the, the Secretary of State is out specifically messaging against that. Um, and when Trump does, when Trump sometimes leans into that and sometimes leans away from it. It's not some sort of clever plan to, uh, you know, keep the Chinese off balance. It's absolute incoherence. We can find whatever strategy we want. And it's, it's I think, and the Chinese can too. And it's, a, it's very often a reflection of our own fears and our own vulnerabilities. So that's very interesting to hear. Um, but I don't think it has anything to do with what Trump is actually doing. And I think we see numerous inconsistencies in it. 
And I think especially over time, as we notice that Trump isn't really bringing along the American people in any of that, he isn't really bringing along certainly the foreign policy establishment, he doesn't appear to be bringing along the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, or his own cabinet, it's going to become increasingly clear that that is not a, that even to the extent that Trump holds that policy, it's not something that he's conceivably capable of implementing. I mean, to be fair to the Chinese, I don't think any of them think that the entire foreign policy establishment is um, uh, is behind everything that Trump is doing. They can see the contradictions that, that we all see. The entire foreign policy establishment, he hasn't even won over his Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense. He hasn't won over his National Security Advisor. I think his son-in-law is on board. I think... That- the idea of disrupting the international institutions, there is uh, definitely a constituency. There's a constituency for disrupting the World Trade Organization, for sure. There's not a constituency for anything else. There's no constituency for disrupting NATO. Uh, there's no constituency. Frankly, there wasn't much constituency for for disrupting the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is already gone. and and which frankly would have been a, a very, very effective way of reigning in China, and which, which Trump would find very, very useful at the moment if he still had it. And I don't think there's much of a constituency for most of the, uh, the sort of wrecking ball that he's taking to the American alliances. And I think that that, you know, uh, I understand why uh, the Chinese might feel this way, but um, you know, the very fact, if you listen to your, to the, to the description that you gave, that the Chinese can consider reaching out to the Europeans, to other, to other new allies, to the Indians, I suppose, to the Russians, uh, is a demonstration that Trump's efforts to, uh, break China, if you will, uh, are, are, are opening up the United States to what the what has traditionally been the U.S. strategy to to contain other would-be aspirants, which is the alliance system. It's been it's always been the greatest U.S. strength, uh, and Trump is weakening it to such an extent that the Chinese have a lot more options than they used to have. So a lot of other people are saying that you know basically if they're really lucky, the Chinese Chinese people, if they really if we're really lucky, we'll manage to get Cambodia on board. But uh, so therefore we shouldn't enter that game because we can't possibly win it. But um, but they're also saying maybe it doesn't matter that much because there's a big discussion also about the nature of the world. The Chinese love to talk about, well, are we in a unipolar world or a multipolar world? And the, so there is a big debate about whether we're entering a period of multipolarity or a period of bipolarity. But the consensus of a lot of the people we're talking to is essentially... This new world is defined by the kind of rise of new powers, the relative decline of the US, that um, you're going to have a different kind of of bipolarity that emerges, not one which is defined by alliance systems, but in fact one where you have shifting loyalties with different players who are willing both to do deals with China and with the US rather than having kind of monogamous relationships. And that as well as the sort of structure of, of, of the different power resources that different countries have, relationships of interdependence are going to be absolutely uh, key to, to the way that these um, uh, powers relate to each other. 
and a lot of the struggles are going to be about uh, manipulating these these different types of interdependence and also having selective independence and that's what's leading to you know a lot of the debates about what china's doing with with its technology strategy where it's trying to get indigenous technologies um discussions about um uh, about how much you should um rely uh, on uh, on on the us in in different areas um and then also a kind of big debate about their belt and road initiative which is going to be connecting china to the rest of the world look mark i mean uh as you know i think from our previous discussions i'm very much pro promiscuity uh in in international relations i hasten to add that's the least interesting place to be promiscuous surely no <laughs> Maybe it is interesting. I can assure you, in my life, it's the most interesting place. But uh, you know, and so uh, obviously, I mean, I think you know, we're already in a world where where uh, promiscu- promiscuity can be valuable. But there are limits to promiscuity, and I think that um, you do have to be able to show even uh, one night stands that you have a certain capacity for and reliability. Uh, you have to be able to show that uh, that you're a worthy partner. Um, and uh, that is why I think the United States has traditionally been an effective alliance manager uh, and, and China and Russia to a large extent have not. Uh, and you can see in Vladimir Putin, for example, in his effort to restructure the world, he's not making the case explicitly for promiscuity, he's making the case that he is a more solid, dependable, and, and less intrusive partner than the United States is. Uh, so I think that, uh, yes, obviously it makes sense for, you know, countries to have various relations with various countries, but uh, the fact that, that Trump has so alienated all the traditional allies that he's not making new ones and that he's demonstrating through his, frankly, his lack of capacity for strategy uh, that, uh, and his unpredictability means that it's going to be very, very difficult for him to use the traditional American strategy of working, on, working with alliances to, to rein in the, the, uh, the challengers. But in a way, you see, this goes back to this one of the things which a lot of the Chinese people actually said. One of the interesting things about what Trump is doing is if Trump was really just interested in in getting a more balanced trading relationship with Beijing, he would have uh, gone to Brussels and uh, worked together with the EU, which have got a very similar critique of um, of Chinese uh, policies, and they'd have worked out a way of putting pressure on the Chinese. Whereas instead, the fact that he's introducing tariffs against Europeans and against Japanese at exactly the same time that he's doing it against the Chinese, in their mind, shows that his ultimate goal is to blow up the WTO. Intriguing. It it could just be that he's dumb. You know, I mean, there are... it's not, I mean, there is no uh, effort to to describe it that way at all. And as a matter of fact, the, uh, the, his trade officials have said they want to reform the WTO, not blow it up. Uh, and there's been a lot of disquiet uh, by the fact that there hasn't been an effort to prioritize America's trade disputes. And within the US government, uh, 
what people tell me is that the, that doesn't come from any strategic plan. It comes from the fact that the president just pushes down this idea that um, he wants better trade deals with everybody. And there's no effort at coordinating these, these various policies. But that, that's the point, is if your goal is basically to... Because essentially, what you're proving in this conversation, um, if I put my Chinese Trumpian hat on, is that you're wedded to outdated paradigms about how the world uh, can be done. And that's why Trump's not going to get anywhere talking to someone like you. And you represent the deep state in the system. You're so wedded to particular ways of working that all you see is irrationality. I think the thing that I'm wedded to is that if you want to have a strategy... Uh, strategy necessarily involves prioritization, and in order to prioritize, you have to weigh things off against each other. Uh, you don't just get a strategy by uh, by saying go out, everybody do everything, and then hope that it hope that it works out okay. So if that's if that's deep state old think, I guess I'm guilty. Okay, well I think you are because um, the uh, what I suppose the Trumpian Chinese person would say is that. Trump's genius consists in basically trying to disrupt everything at exactly the same time. So you blow up all these different things and then you put yourself in a position because you remove all of the institutional structures that allow other people to organize against you in a position where you actually have the um, the, the kind of escalation monopoly in every single uh uh, domain and you can actually play these things off against each other so one really interesting thing that that came up in my discussions with chinese i was i was uh, a they uh, are getting quite frustrated because actually their multi-flank uh, approach of pushing back at trump isn't working very well the europeans don't want to work with them against trump they want to have their own uh, approach um, but also from a european perspective you know, Europeans want to get their Chinese to help them save the Iran nuclear deal, which we discussed often on this podcast. And there are lots of things which the Chinese can do to, to, to help prop up the Iran nuclear deal. But the Chinese, when I asked them about that, were very keen to say, oh, this is kind of a European problem. There's not very much that China can do. We have enough problems with the US. We don't want to open up a new flank by annoying them um, with uh, by with the, on on the Iran nuclear uh, file, um, so in a way, actually, what's interesting is that Trump's approach seems to be dividing other countries rather than driving them together. I mean, rationally, you would have thought that the rest of the world would unite against some of these things and and try and push back, but in practice, it seems to be actually making it more difficult. And he is kind of fermenting dissent between the different players. Well, look, it's only been it's only been eighteen months, uh, and you know, I think you and I have been discussing the sort of Europe-China reaction to Trump for a long time. Uh, for, I think since the beginning of the administration. And obviously, when you talk to European officials about this, and I think both of us, both of us have done this, uh, at a certain level, they sort of express a horror uh, about working with the Chinese, the Russians, or even the Indians uh, to gang up on the Americans. It's, it's quite uh, antithetical to their worldview, to their long history of the thing. But what I have noticed in the last year and a half is that it's it's slowly moving in that direction. It is overcoming slowly but surely um, that effort. And I think, you know, a few more European trips like we saw uh, 
this week. And I think you will see Europeans starting to think about how they can work with the Chinese on trade and, 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 and that will provide an opening for them to get uh, Chinese help on the Iran deal or whatever. So obviously these types of things don't happen overnight and the European habit of cooperation with the Americans is, is quite long-standing and, and quite baked into the system. But um, I think you know, there, is, there is a sort of iron law in international politics that countries will eventually recognize these interests. Unless it's in the transatlantic relationship, in which case they'll carry on. Well, it is certainly a counterexample for quite some time, but I think Trump has done an amazing amount in 18 months, and 18 months is not very long in the scheme of things, to, uh, to, to reverse that. Now, I think, you know, it will require, I have to admit, you know, several more years. He'll probably need a second term to do it. Um, but if he gets one, I think it's, it's within his capacity. So another thing which came up um, in China, um, but which was interesting. So while I was uh, still there, um, you know, I saw uh, from a distance the Trumpian uh, circus moving from Brussels to uh, London to Scotland and then to Helsinki, where Trump was meeting with, uh, with President Putin. You know, that was something that happened after your last podcast. So it'll be interesting to, to hear a bit more about what you thought about that. But from a Chinese perspective, they also had an interesting way of looking at that because for them, you know, if their big understanding of what Trump is trying to do is right, this did look a bit like a, a sort of Kissinger in reverse or a Nixon yeah. in reverse where Trump has decided that his main enemy um, is... Um, is China, you know, with Germany maybe as its kind of second uh, big enemy, um, and uh, and therefore it made total sense to 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 try and pick Russia off. That would make sense, but it's in it's in complete contradiction to the doctrine that you elaborated just a few minutes ago, where he just is wrecking everything at the same time, and he doesn't feel like he needs uh, alliances and partners to do that. I don't think he needs long-term alliances. And to be fair, the, the U.S.-Russian relationship was pretty destroyed. So I'm not sure that, that that was a big candidate to be wrecked. Uh, sure. Um, look, I mean, I think it, it would make sense for there to be a reverse Kissinger at this point. And that's something that I have been arguing for quite some time, even in the Obama administration. Um, but... Uh, I, it's very hard to attribute what Trump is doing to the, and what Trump was doing in Helsinki or what Trump is doing generally vis-a-vis -vis Russia to, uh, to that, uh, motive. Because first of all, his government isn't doing that at all. Trump seems to be the only one who's doing it. And he seems to be entirely focused. And this is what came out so clearly in Helsinki is not on the international relations uh, grand strategic implications of U.S. of the U.S.-Russian-Chinese triangle or whatever, but rather on his own domestic political struggles uh, and on the Mueller probe and on the fact that there was no collusion. Did, did he mention that there was no collusion? So it, it really has nothing to do with these questions. I thought he said that there was collusion. Did he not just forget the... Uh, yes, he said that he... He said that when he said, I... Uh, why would Russia have interfered in our election? He's meant to say, why wouldn't Russia have interfered in his election? 
in this election. And, uh, you know, using that um, capacity for retrospective editing, I would like to amend several of my previous statements. Um, but uh, I think it's really not all that significant. The, uh, that particular word change is not particularly significant. It was very clear in Helsinki that his entire focus was on his domestic political struggles, that he saw the U.S.-Russian relationship through the lens of his battles with the Democrats, of his battles with the Mueller probe, that he's not really interested in the questions of how the U.S. relates to Russia. What he's interested in is validating his presidency and getting out from under the Mueller probe. Okay. Have you got anything else that you want to say about Helsinki? Well, I had a piece with um, Corey Shockey today in War on the Rocks, uh, which uh, more or less covers my view on the, um, on the Helsinki summit. And it, it sort of notes that the problem, that what that, what that showed is less about, it, it makes to a degree the point I just made. I've just called up your piece actually while we were talking and it has a title which is somewhat confusing to people who are not um, big fans of, uh, of, of American film. How the Big Lebowski explains the Helsinki summit and the international order. Look, if you guys don't know about the Big Lebowski, then I don't know how to teach you anything. I mean, it's that, that, that seems to me to be the most basic cultural literacy that you can have. And so uh, any of your research assistants in the room or whatever who haven't seen that movie, should run out right now. I've even seen that movie, but I can't, I can't tell you without reading your piece why, uh, why it would explain. So there's a, there's a line in that movie when uh, he's having a fight with his friend Walter, and uh, uh, Walter is insisting that he's right, he's right, he's right, and, and finally the, uh, Lebowski says to him, the problem, Walter, is not that you're wrong, the problem is that you're an asshole. And, and that is ef- effectively the problem that Trump had at Helsinki. You know, you could have an idea that it's a good idea to have a better U.S.-Russian relationship. You could have an idea that you have to have a different approach to Putin. You could even have a, an important conversation about how to deal with the Ukraine and Syria issues, given the new realities in the region and given, as we were talking about, the need to deal with China. Um, but Trump didn't do any of that. Trump was only concerned about himself, only concerned about his domestic political fortunes. And so he was negotiating with the Russian president uh, on the basis of his personal and domestic political needs rather than thinking about the country that he led or the alliance that he's supposed to lead. And that meant that uh, there wasn't really any possibly good outcome that could come from that. And it got so bad at, at one point in, the, in that press conference that Putin himself, who, uh, as another one of our colleagues, Kadri Leek, noted in her piece on the Helsinki summit, uh, he rec- uh, Putin recognizes that Trump needs to represent his country. <laughs> more than Trump seems to recognize, that he won't be able to forge deals with Putin unless he's able to lead the country that he is president of. And so it was Putin who actually mentioned that they have a disagreement over Crimea in the press conference because Trump didn't even bring it up because he doesn't care. All right, so that brings our discussion of the Helsinki summit, I think, to 
uh, to a conclusion. And if people are still curious about it, you can go and check out Jeremy's piece on the Big Lebowski and uh, also Kadri's piece that Jeremy just mentioned. But we have uh, one more very important thing to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Jeremy, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Yeah, what's on my bookshelf is maybe slightly unfair to mention because it's a it's a as yet unpublished book um but it's a novel uh by a friend of mine uh Doreen Bangana who's from Uganda and uh she's written a novel which I think is going to be published soon um called Tongues of Fire which is about the sort of uh evolution of a of a woman from uh wife to alcoholic to mystic and then eventually to a guerrilla leader in Uganda. And so it's a fascinating story of someone who goes through that, uh, those multiple uh, transitions. And, and it's very woven into the, into the history of Uganda in the 1980s. Wow, okay. Yeah, it sounds more interesting. I was, I was going to recommend something which was on topic, which is um, Francois Goodman's uh, recent article about Trump cannot bring Europe and China together, which is on our website. But... Um, another thing maybe which I should mention which I did watch on my uh, jet lagged evenings while I was in China um, which many people might have already seen but I felt, found absolutely uh, fascinating particularly uh, if you're very jet lagged uh, was um, the Netflix series on Bobby Kennedy for president which was a, a really uh, wonderfully evocative images of, of a fascinating political figure even if the last episode was slightly uh, too conspiratorially minded for, for 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 my liking but anyway um we will put links up to all of these things including the unpublished i don't know is there any way that we could put a link no to that's what i meant by unfair it's uh i don't think there is any way that we can put a link to it um, so I think everybody should just note it down because it's a really great book and it's going to, um, I think when it comes out, it'll be very popular. Okay. And in the meantime, you can watch Bobby Kennedy for president and read Francois Goodman's piece on our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcast. And before we sign off for today, I wanted to launch uh, a new idea, which uh, came to me um, as I was flying back from China so the, as a, the bookshelf segment is, in fact, the main thing that we're told many people come to the, the podcast for. You have to sit through half an hour of me chatting to other people about other things before you get to this, uh, uh, to this segment. So we thought that um, uh, it could be interesting to open up the bookshelf segment to regular listeners to the podcast. And I'd like to invite any of you to write to me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu with your recommendations for books. Tell us what's on your bookshelf and why. And uh, every episode we'll read out the most interesting ones that, that come in, unless nobody writes to me, in which case you'll just have to listen to me and the guests talking about our bookshelves. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the podcast. If you have, it would be wonderful if you could head to your social media outlets and write about it on your Facebook page or on ours or tweet about it and even better leave us a review and a rating on the platform that you've used to listen to the podcast on but for now from Jeremy Shapiro and myself Mark Leonard it's goodbye the researcher of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Hakenbrosch and our editor is Katarina Butte-Atzinaro <laughs> <laughs>